welcome to another episode of Because Money. Today we are talking about RESPs, or Registered Education Savings Plans, and how they are a fantastic way to save for your child's uh, education. Uh, remember that if you want to encourage more real conversations about money like this, to visit us at patreon.com slash because money, and hopefully you'll feel that contributing some of your hard-earned money will be a worthwhile endeavor and help support the podcast and keep it going. Thanks for listening and hope you enjoy the show. Do this thing where we answer all the RESP questions. All of the possible RESP questions. Yeah, yeah, I really, I wish we could have had MYD on the show. Like, I think that would have been, I think everybody would like to see the genius person who's like, hey guys, you know, I just had some extra time. And I decided to scrape the audio off of all of your video podcasts and uploaded them for you. Does that yeah. work? Are you okay with that? <laughs> He's the absolute best. Yeah. I, I just, I've never really met anybody like that. So that was pretty cool. So it'd be nice to have him on the show, but you know, babies he, take precedent. Yeah. Babies take precedent. And his spirit is definitely here with a whole bunch of really, really, really awesome questions. Right. Just like super, super solid. So yeah, Do you, should we just kind of start at the top? Yeah, why don't Work we? Work way down? Okay, so I've got his questions up on the other screen here. Yeah, I got them beside me too, so I can toss them out every once in a while. As do I. Wow, it's oh. like we're prepared and stuff for this episode. Well, this is the height of preparation that I've done. I've loaded up the questions, and I'm really ready to learn. I'm going to play that part that I play so often on this podcast, where I'm the person that is like, oh, and what about, wait, how does that, what do it, yeah. The delightful ingenue. We know you. We know you. The yeah. it boy. <laughs> yeah, it's um the Zoe Deschanel of RESPs. Yeah, in the Zoe, <laughs> Zoe Deschanel of RESPs. <laughs> Zoe Deschanel was a bumbling financial planner. Okay, question the first. <laughs> <laughs> um talking about the pros and cons of a family plan versus an individual plan. And um, specifically talking about, you know, anything to watch out for on the family plan side. This is where I realized I skipped this section and went on and answered all the other questions. So, oh, no, John. I was hoping you would answer this one because I only have one kid. So I've never really looked into the family plan all that much. Damn it. <laughs> so, I mean, you were talking about it earlier on as soon as uh, MOID asked these questions about... Um, you know, what uh, the family plan was doing and how it would track the various um, contributions and what was allocated to which kid. And I thought that like you would not go for the family plan because everything else in your money management suggests that you do not like the money touching the other money. But you, you were good with the family plan as I recall, right? Yeah. You know what? I wonder if we had more aggressive or specific education funding goals for our kids, which right now is whatever we can afford to give you, which isn't much. Um, maybe I would care more about the money touching the money. It just seemed like ugh, another account. Oh, gross. It, yeah, I didn't, it really was not anything more elaborately planned than that. And from what I understand, I mean, I, I can't think of a reason not to do an, a family plan if you have multiple kids, unless there's a huge age difference from one to the other and like managing the asset glide path over time for your 18 year old and your eight year old is too complex. Like that makes sense. Yeah, because as I understand, you still only get 31 years until the last kid has to enroll from the time you start it. So if you have a huge age spread, then you could run into that problem where 
the first kid goes off to university and graduates and whatever, and then the last kid, if there's enough years behind and takes some gap years, et cetera, uh, the plan might have to close before they make it to university. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and so then the other thing is, I mean, NYD even shared an article with us about like, well, what if your contributions get misapplied? But in a family plan, it's not that they won't because that happens, but it's like saying, I'm not gonna open an RRSP because what if they get my contributions wrong? Like it can happen for sure, but that's, I mean, that's really on the institution that you choose. So if you choose one of those new fangled, I don't know, I was gonna say something mean about somebody, I'm not gonna do that, but. Yeah. So really, I don't think there's, I don't think choosing between an individual and a family plan at the same institution that has a history of messing up contributions is going to save you from messed up contributions. Yeah. So then the one other aspect that may drive the decision, uh, not so much if your parents already, uh, but there are fewer and or no restrictions on who can be the subscriber. And perhaps we should take a sidebar right after this to do some terminology. Uh, but there's no restrictions on who can be the subscriber, the person that opens the account for an individual plan, but there are for a family plan. Right. Right. Good call, John. Yeah, that's a good one. Because those are questions that NYD has specifically about who can open what and yeah. oh, all sorts of really interesting scenarios he came up with. Oh, yeah. A little scared of them, actually, from some of them. Absolutely terrifying. <laughs> Okay, so after that cold start, let's just take one step back and we're going to do a tiny bit of terminology review. That's a good idea. RESP, Registered Education Savings Plan. This is a specific account that uh, is created for you to be able to save for your child's education or for someone else to save for your child's education. And there are lots of really good things about the RESP that make it an uh, attractive option for saving towards your child's education. A big one and a huge reason to put money into it is that the government will match contributions that you make. So if you're a sort of regular everyday Canadian with access to the federal grant, the federal grant is called the CESG or Canadian Education Savings Grant. And for every $2,500 that you put in, the government will put in 500. And that scales perfectly by you know, that 20% factor. And if you make lower levels of income, the first $500 that you put in gets a bonus grant. So depending on how much you make, you might get, uh, instead of $100, you might get up to $200 up or even $400 if I've got, I should have the tab open <laughs> while I say this, um, of contribution room. Uh, Sandy, do you want to go through some of the provincial grants while I get that tab open and correct myself on whatever that contribution room was? Well, there used to, there used to be yeah you, there used to be two provincial grants, and as far as I know from um, kind of the last updates that I saw, there's really only one left, which is the BC Training and Education Grant, which is twelve hundred dollars um, for every child in BC, regardless of income. Um, between six uh, ages six to nine, so it's what like if you're between six and nine, you get this twelve hundred dollars. It's not. Um, $1,200 per year for those years, but you just have to have an RESP open. So it's free money that's available. You just have to have the container to put it in. And then Quebec also has its own program. Oh yeah, Quebec has its own program. Yeah, because Quebec, but is Quebec always has that little asterisk of like, something's happening in Quebec and it might not be the same as the rest of Canada. And sorry guys, we don't live in Quebec, we can't help you. Sidebar, everyadvisor.ca column. So that's meant for kind of insurance and financial planning people like all of their columns have a section at the bottom that says Quebec is different and then I have a bunch of other stuff. 
sorry, so I've got the tab up now. So if you make more than $45,916, but less than $91,831, then your first $500 of RESP contribution will get you $150 or a 30% match. And if you're under that 45916 level, you get a 40% match or $200. And then on top of the CESG that we're talking about, there's also something for even lower income families called the Canada Savings Bond. And that's where the, the government will just put... Canada Learning Bond. Sorry. <laughs> it's a bond and it's from Canada, but Canada no learning. Savings bond is like Correct. Yeah. That's cool. That's cool. We're Sorry, cool. Guys. Yeah. No, it, it does not help when I'm trying to explain the terminology and get the terminology wrong. Yes, the, that one. The Canada <laughs> Learning Bond. <laughs> So if you're in a uh, low income bracket, uh, having a little bit of trouble saving some money for your child's education, the government will put money in for you, but you have to go through some hoops in terms of paperwork, actually opening the account. This is harder than it should be. Every now and then, people like me write letters to their MP about <laughs> making this easier. But the fact is it is there. If you go through the work, uh, you can start to get at least some money put into your RESP for your child without you having to put anything in. Yes. Sam. And it is worth noting that not all institutions are administrators of all of like the Canada Learning Bond. Some institutions will not administer that. So you might be subscribed, like you might have an RESP and you just can't get that money. You don't realize it. Um, and definitely the BC Training and Education Grant, that one you have to check very clear. There's a list actually, if you go to smartsaver.com or .ca, to look that up but there's definitely there's a list that you can find that says here are all the subscribers to or here are all the um the institutions that will allow you to have these special grants and bonds yeah and the same thing for the weirdo quebec one there not everyone will be able to give that to you yeah yeah and, and even for this um enhanced cesg uh you might need to check with your institution as to whether or not they can uh give you that um, or at least let them know that you're in that lower income bracket and you should be getting it yeah. Oh, so let's talk about what happens inside. We should just do kind of a brief primer on yeah. the RESP anyway. So what happens once yeah. the money's inside there, John? So once the money's inside there, depending on what account type you open, you can invest it or just put it into a plain Jane savings account. And that money's going to grow and compound tax-free. So you're not going to have to do any reporting or any kind of uh, tax burden for you as this money grows. And then when your child goes to post-secondary education, that does not mean university. It includes colleges and a lot of other training programs. And just With an aside, exception that we'll talk about later. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All, lots of asterisks and uh, exceptions in this one. Uh, so uh, again, to sidebar on the sidebar, uh, if you're concerned that your kid might not be go to, go to university, that's okay because there are lots of other training programs at the RSP money will still be good toward. Uh, and a stat that I dug up and I don't have the report open anymore is that about 80% of kids in Canada will at least enroll in a program that's eligible. Not necessarily finished, the stats for that are a little bit lower, um, but all you have to do is enroll to start pulling the money out of the RESP and be useful for you even if they end up dropping out in the second year or whatever. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, so that money in the RESP, you can invest it, save it, It'll grow the interest, the dividends, the capital gains. None of that's going to be taxable for you. And then what happens is that any income is going to be taxed in the hands of the student when it comes out for appropriate education uses. And appropriate education uses, I mean that they satisfy the criteria to be able to start pulling that money out according to the plan, which means that they're enrolled. They do not track or have even have a list of what is and is not an eligible expense. So they can pull the money out, use it for rent, 
use it for a car to get to school, uh, use it for tuition books, for food, whatever they need to make their education happen. Uh, you're not going to need to keep receipts or anything like that. You're just going to have to have proof of enrollment. Uh, there's going to be a limitation on how much of the accumulated income and grants you can take out for the first semester. And then after that, you can take out as much as you need to. And um, yeah, so then that is going to be taxed in the hands of the students. The contribution that you put in, you don't get a tax deduction for putting it in, but there's no tax consequence of taking it out. It just comes out tax-free. Uh, and then, as I said, the other stuff gets taxed in the hands of the student, which means very little tax is usually attracted to it because uh, the student generally doesn't have a lot of income. And then what if your kid doesn't go to school at all, full stop, doesn't even enroll? They're the 20% that don't enroll at all. Yeah, so if that happens, uh, if it's a family plan, you can start transferring some of the contributions to another kid in the family. If that isn't an option, then you can collapse the plan and take the money out. So you get the money that you put in back, and then you have to pay a penalty tax on the money that you put in or roll it into an RSP and you have to repay the grants and the growth of the grants. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's not the, I mean, it's not like you lose your money, right? Like yeah, that is a conversation that I've had. World. It's not like this is a stupid thing where you're like, oh, if I do this, I'm gonna be so much worse off if my kid doesn't go to school. So you need to like hedge your bets as to whether or not to open it in the first place uh, by really thinking about whether or not they're gonna do that. Like if you plan for your kid to go to school and you want to, or I shouldn't even say school, post-secondary education because it might be an apprenticeship or something. Uh, if you want your kid to go on to post-secondary education, it's gonna cost money. Go ahead and start putting the money in there. And then if they end up not going, there, there aren't gonna be huge consequences to having to wrap this up. Yeah, most of the penalties and stuff are just about giving the money back that you got from the government. So you get free money from the government, you have to give it back if you don't use it for that. Yeah, and then paying a little bit of penalty tax, which yeah. basically is probably still, I think, better. I haven't run the numbers in a while than having ha than the alternative of having had that money in a non-registered account anyway. Yeah. Um, so then, this is a great segue to talk about the scholarship trust funds and how they're kind of different. The group RESPs, because there is an immediate fee that you pay, and there are steep, steep penalties if you withdraw or stop contributing right away. Right. Yes, and, and that's uh, not from the government. That is from these companies that are setting up these plans. That are visiting and, you in the hospital. And they're visiting you in the hospital and knocking on your door and uh, putting their leaflets out at the you know stroller shop at the cash register and stuff. And the reason they're so aggressive is because that fee includes a lot of commission for the people that sell these. Uh, so that's why they're gonna be so in your face and trying to get you to sign up for them. And you have to pay out that commission uh, before your money starts to really work for you. I looked up one example before we got going here, and it mentioned that of the contributions that you make between, and this is a weirdly specific yet huge range, 3.1 to 24.1% of your contributions go towards the fee. And generally the first 32 months are spent paying off the upfront fees before you start working toward. Wait. What? Yeah. Yeah. So Twenty-four percent. Yes. That's. <laughs> that's it's a, insanity. It's which, just insanity. It's also a, a like a real failure of just this. Like, don't say any. Three to twenty-four is nothing. That's almost like a. It's almost a quarter of the percent that you could offer. Oh, it's one of the percents below twenty-five. <laughs> 
Like, that's what they're saying. You're like, is it one? It's not one. Is it two? It's not two. <laughs> that's, that's, that's all they should disclose it. Less than 25, it's not one or two. <laughs> but think though, the people that are, the people that have signed up for this, like we meet them all the time in planning. Like, do you have an RESP? Yes, I do. It's one of these. And everybody, including the person that's telling you, I have one, it's one of these, goes, oh. Because there's, because they thought they were doing the right thing at the time. Because it's better than have, like every parent wants, like, okay, well, I guess I mean I don't have loads of money, but I'd like to at least this makes sense and it's easier. They make it way easier than the bank does to go in and open one. Like it's oh well, you're soon they come right home. Oh. It's way easier to open one of these garbage ones. I mean, between two and three percent of garbage ones. <laughs> I don't know. Well, they have so yeah. much money, more money just to make the infrastructure better, right? I think they might be quite litigious as well. <laughs> <laughs> and these ones are generally a lot more restrictive in terms of how you can use them, especially if they set themselves up not as a group RESP, but as some sort of like scholarship group membership where... Tontine. Yes, exactly. And so what, what that means is that often they'll be invested in relatively uh, conservative underlying investments for the money that you put in. Uh, but they'll sometimes boast rates of return that are better than what you would normally see on a very conservative investment. And the reason that difference exists, difference exists is because you, if you are one of the ones that continues to make your payments and your um, child goes into one of the programs that they approve of within the time frame that they approve of, which again, may be more restrictive than the RESP program in general, uh, then you'll get the money that the other parents who didn't meet all those criteria lost by not making that criteria. So the extra return that you get, that extra safe, secure return is on the backs of other people's misery. Yeah. So it's a bit like the Hunger Games, but for our ESPs? There are less mutant bees. Are there? Other mutant? than that, very apt comparison. Can you promise zero mutant bees? Well, between zero and 24%. Okay. That's what I can promise. But it's not one or two. It's not one and it's not two. And it's also not zero. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's, um, that's not great. What, what can people, if you find yourself in one of those, is there anything you can do? Like if you look at it 10, 12 years later and you're like, ooh, that, it's not where I want to be. I bet they make it really hard to get your money out. Yeah, there's, yeah, there's definitely things you can do, but they all come with a pretty enormous price tag attached to them, right? Yeah. So there's the penalty to get out. You forfeit any of the fees that you paid. Um, if you stop contributing, you are considered forfeiting. You're breaking the contract. Um, but you can still take your money out, the, you know, after net of fees. Um, but then, yeah, so do you, like, do you hope that your kids get into that particular program or I mean for a lot of people especially in the early years like when you're talking about 10 or 12 years you're thinking like okay let's do a cost-benefit analysis of this in the early years it's way better to cut and run yeah so what would we say the cut like five years five years in definitely or less you know yeah I, I haven't done a spreadsheet but that sounds intuitively about right I'm good at intuitive math <laughs> <laughs> carry the four carry the feels like it feels like five five <laughs> That's how I cook too. <clears throat> that's, that's a scary thing. Yeah, so let's forget about them. Don't do them, kids. Don't get involved with those scholarship trust group <laughs> RESP bad apples. PSA. <laughs> it's a PSA for all y'all people. 
Not great. Okay. It's, yeah. Let's move um, on to something else. There's something happy. happier? Um, so... Uh, this is a mentioned... happier question. Oh, okay. sorry, John, go ahead. I, I oh, sorry. It. So, so in the description of RESPs mentioned that uh, to get start getting that money out, you pretty much just have to provide proof of enrollment. So one of MYD's questions was, what happens if your child is like super gifted yeah. and skips a bunch of grades and starts going to university at 16 or even younger? And um, for, again, we're going to get into some weird language here. For qualified programs, as far as I can tell reading through the site today, there are no age limitations. So yeah. if they manage to buzz through high school at age 12 and go to university, first off, they're probably getting a scholarship anyway and they don't need to access their RESP right away, but they could just start taking the money out right away. For uh, specified programs, which is some of the vocational training that would not necessarily lead to a college or university diploma or degree. Um, there is a 16 uh, year uh, old minimum. So you have to be at least 16 years old to go into some of those okay. post-secondary programs and take the money out. Uh, again, not a real world concern for most people, but. A good question. He though. asked really and there it is. Yeah, it's good to know. You're right. It's like in a lot of those cases, financial support is provided from lots of sources because you're, you're really gifted. But, you know, it doesn't mean you shouldn't have access to the money that your parents saved. There's lots of things that you can spend on your education. Um, no, that's... Or education. For those listening at home, those were finger quotes. <laughs> I think that your tone was abundantly clear that they were finger quotes. This is my descriptive audio. That's fine. <laughs> No problem making this more accessible. Come on. Come on. No. All pro. All, all, all pro. <laughs> uh, so as long as we're on like the nitty gritty of some of the rules of this, mm -hmm. um, another question that he asks is what happens uh, if you want to set up an RESP later in life, you know, rather than rushing out of the uh, hospital or midwifery or wherever you're having your uh, delivery and going right over to your local financial institution to open up your own self-directed RESP. <laughs> <laughs> Sandy had a. It was the second day. It was. It's fine. It's the second day. Yeah. Keep, keep right from the midwifery. Yeah, I know. I, I waited until you know my daughter's born in April. I waited until May. So. Oh, man, <laughs> don't procrastinate much. <laughs> um. Anyway, so the question is: uh, Can you set one up later in life, or can you set up your own RESP? And so you can set one up later in life. You can open your own RESP. The catch, though, is that the biggest benefit of opening an RESP is getting that Canada Education Savings Grant, the CESG. And in order to get that, you have to have contributed at least $2,000 before you turn 15 or over the course of four years, at least $100 a year before you turn 15. So if you turn 18, decide to open your own RESP to start saving towards your own education, you're not getting the main benefit of the RESP in the first place, and it may not be worth all the hassle of setting it up. But you still also seem like a really together person. <laughs> I just want to throw that out there. Yeah. But by the time you're 18, you'll also start having TFSA room, and that may just be a better thing to use if you don't get the grants. How old, so if you've done $100 a year before you turn 15, do you, 
how late can you um oh still only to 17 yeah, only, only till 17 right till yeah. End, yeah okay the year you turn 18 so i think it's the year you turn 17 isn't it no the end of the year that you turn so december 31st end. of the year that you turn 17. Yeah. okay okay sorry yeah. yeah to get really specific yeah between three and twenty-four percent. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yikes! That's going to be a fun, fun. <laughs> Forever. Yeah. That yeah, means so, so it's by calendar year. Yeah. So, yeah. Sorry, the year you turned seventeen. No, that's a good thing to know. So yeah, so it's good. But by eighteen, you don't have access, even if you follow those rules yeah. about fifteen and and uh, four years of a hundred dollars. You still you're just not getting the CESG. So. Yeah. It, it might be more trouble than it's worth with the restrictions and all that to, there might just be better options. Yeah. But, like said, uh, but I mean, that, that's another reason to open one up. And even if you can't throw a lot in there to at least try to throw in a hundred dollars a year mm -hmm. so that if your child gets a summer job at, at uh, 14 or 15 or 16, they can still at least throw some money in and get some matching for themselves, even if you can't well uh, contribute anymore we're rolling way down myd's list but that's also another reason why even if you don't have lots of money you, you should still open the account because that's the container that any of these grants that are not that have nothing to do with how much you contribute just how much income that you have or the yeah. age of your kids or whatever you have to have the account open so it's worth opening an account not at a scholarship trust or group RESP. it's worth opening an account even if you think oh, it's so unlike i'm even going to be able to put a single dollar in there yeah Okay. Open an account. Open an account. Open an account, kids. Next question. Or, or parents. <laughs> and parents. I just now at the ripe old age of 40, I assume everybody else isn't just a kid. <laughs> Wait, that's not what I mean. <laughs> oh. Yeah. Nailed it. Um okay. Question talking about um did we talk did we just talk about this? The the best way to set up an RSP for a kid who's not related to you? No, we didn't talk about it. No, we, that, that. Yeah. So, what's the best way to set up a RESP for a child? We uh, John was mentioning before the the difference between kind of individual and family, and that um, that as a subscriber, that subscriber, which is a way I shouldn't be in charge of this at all. Subscriber um, is the person who opens the account. Sorry. Yes, we didn't define that. Term, we didn't so define yes. that. It was the yeah. it was the thing that we they kicked off our definition section but we didn't actually define it so a subscriber yeah. is the person that opens the account yes and generally is the one who puts the money in and who controls the money mm -hmm. and then the beneficiary is the student the person who's going to uh, yeah. receive the money and who in whose hands the uh, education payments and the grants will be taxed at the time that they go to post-secondary education okay and you were saying that a family plan is more limited to who can be the subscriber than an individual plan yeah, so uh, a family plan, uh, you have to be a parent, a brother or sister, or a grandparent okay. to the beneficiary. As far as I can tell, it, even aunts and uncles aren't allowed. No, that's why yeah. you do individual plans. But so individual plans, though, you can open for anybody. It doesn't even have to be you know, somebody that's related to you. And the best way to do it is the way that you would open any account, right? Like um, the only things that you need are the social insurance number of the kid, and you also need the... the parent or guardian to sign off on the grant applications so you they would know i mean you can't do it without the parent or guardian knowing about it which leads us to the very scary question that myd asked us <laughs> which was what if i wanted to make sure they couldn't get the grant like if i opened an resp and maxed it out in the other kid's name and that they couldn't have access to the grant um but they not that they would have access but you couldn't do it without their consent really 
I guess you can really trick them. Yeah, but we're, we're, we're down like hijinks lane now, right? That's like, can you it's sign this non-related form and it's got like a little cutout and then you're like, I got it. I'm going to save money for your kid's education. Yeah, but uh, Sandy actually raised a good point because what is it that you need the parent's signature for? The application. The That's it. The RESP itself. Oh. So uh, Michael James, uh, he's got blog michaeljamesonmoney.com. Back in 2010, he actually wrote a post about this, about uh, using an RESP as a weapon or griefing someone with an RESP. Because if you have the kid's social insurance number and the demographic information that you need to open the RESP account, you can open an RESP account in their name and contribute the entire $50,000 um, oh. contribution room all at once. All the contribution room is gone. The parents didn't sign off on the grant application. They can't get the grants anywhere. And you've just burned all their RESP room and they can't get it back. And he's like, you'd have to be a very vindictive uh, person to do this. Um, but it, it looks like it's theoretically possible in the but rules. How, if, I guess, well, yeah. You, you, until we have a court case where someone does it and, can, and then you get into a lawsuit to fight it, I, I don't know what would happen. But you'd have to have, I mean, you could not do that with their social insurance number. You'd no, have yeah, to have you need, that. You need the same, yeah. Because that's how they would track how much lifetime contribution there was. Yeah. Interesting. Oh, I didn't even think about it. Like, that's how, that's how mean I got. Like, oh, well, they had, couldn't have the grant. Oh, now they can't have anything. Oh, geez. Man, guys, I don't want to hang out with you anymore. <laughs> It's, it's, it's quite specifically vindictive. Like it's, yeah. it's a special nerdy kind of angry. <laughs> I'm going to get back at you feels with your like, RESP. Like it just, yeah. Now you only have $50,000 plus earnings. <laughs> no grant money for you. Well, again, the subscriber controls the money. So they can put all $50,000 in and then collapse it. And then the room is gone, the grants are gone, and the kid doesn't get it. Like, it's not like they're giving the kid $50,000 and just using up the grant room. We're going to do a, like a mashup episode once, which is just like a clip of John's <laughs> evil ideas. <laughs> just going to be a whole bunch of John's evil ideas of varying topics. Yeah. So, I mean, again, this is not meant as a blueprint to grief someone. <laughs> just, please don't do that. And, and again, it, it also means that if you give your kids sin to a relative to open an RESP, you have to have at least some level of trust hmm. that they're going to use that responsibly and that they're going to maintain the relationship with at least the child, if not you, uh, for the next whatever it takes, 18 years if you're starting one for a baby, um, because they're they have the option to, if they want to be vindictive and give away a bunch of government grants and free uh, tax-free growth and stuff, they can collapse it later. Yeah. Well, even if they don't want to be vindictive, this is another question that MYD asked. Yeah. Like, what if there's a big split in the family, like between parents or whoever is subscribing between the person who has control of the RESP and the kid? Does the kid have any recourse? And really, they don't. Whatever the subscriber does with that money, even if they wanted to collapse it, pay the penalty, send all the grants and bonds back to the government, that's up to them. They can do that. Yeah, and, and uh, they can even make it slightly worse than that uh, because that was one of his of questions. Of course they can. Yeah. yeah. Uh, that, that was one of his questions is, you know, what happens if uh, the parents and the child or whoever the subscriber is has a falling out with the beneficiary and then they, you know, enroll in some sort of program and start pulling money out, 
Well, that generates a tax liability to the kid, but they don't have to give the money to the kid. So the the government rules that I was reading say that, you know, the EAP payment, that education assistance payment, goes to the beneficiary. But in practice, as far as I know, it it's held in the hands of the subscriber. And so they can control it and they can just not give it to the beneficiary if they're in that sort of mood, but the beneficiary will still get the T4A for the income and have to pay income tax with money they didn't get. And again, that we'd have to see a lawsuit to see how yeah. it would actually play out in practice, but um, it, it could be bad. Uh, uh, yeah, well, I mean, yes, we'd have to see a lawsuit, but the law would definitely d decide in favor of the beneficiary. If that's, I mean, it's, you can't withdraw and say, well, here's the proof of enrollment. It's being used for education for the purposes of the beneficiary. And then not, and then not actually, I mean, you can do it, but you, you won't be on the right side of the law. Yeah. No. That one's pretty straightforward. The other ones are more, I think, I think you could probably make the case for it. Right. But the other ones are more like, well, ooh, I just didn't, whatever. But this is like, I took the money out. I said it was for them. I signed the form that said it was for them and I didn't give it to them, but ha you can't catch me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I just don't understand why you didn't become a lawyer, Sandy. Like, it's just, it's so natural. That legal argument just flows up your tongue. Well, you know, it's all those law blogs. I read. <laughs> law blogs. Law blogs. Law blogs. Law blogs. Blog. <laughs> yeah, it's, is there anything, um, yeah, there's no, there's no structure, like with an RESP structure, there's different structures that you could kind of set up that, that would have a more, that could have protections built in, but like, so in, in answer to that question, there's nothing you can really do as far as the RESP. It's owned by the subscriber. It's owned by the subscriber full on. And if they decide to withdraw that, then they withdraw it. Yeah. Yeah. Cause it's not a trust. It's a contract, right? Exactly. Contract yeah. between the, the subscriber and the institution. It's not a trust that has other rules around it other than what is in kind of the RESP set up mm -hmm. in the first place. Yeah. And it's not even like you can set up, a bank account in advance to send have the money designated to be sent to when it gets pulled out because you set it up for children who don't have bank accounts at that point in their lives. I mean, yours didn't have bank accounts <laughs> at that point <laughs> in their life? I don't, I don't believe that. Did the bank make you open six accounts for all your kids? Your kids all need six accounts <laughs> and credit what? cards. My kids might have their own bank account. They might have had them for a long time. I mean, who's to say? Not me. <laughs> I think you're to say right now. <laughs> they have between three and 24 accounts. Somewhere there. That's, I said that's fair. It's not zero. Um, okay. Kind of in the same vein, um, but a little bit on the other side of it, like what happens to an RESP account um, if you die before the child is ready for the money? So does it become part of your estate? What happens to that? RESP. Well, so first, is there a joint subscriber? Because if there's a joint subscriber, there is a, like a ton of paperwork to do, but it can be done. You can transfer it to the remaining surviving subscriber, right? Um, but then there's no, there's no other mechanism other than having, other than that joint subscriber mechanism, there's no other mechanism to pass it to like an alternate you can do, you need, there's ways to do that with beneficiaries and to, to, to successor holders of TFSAs. Yeah. Um, but with RESPs, if you don't make any special kind of 
clauses in your will about it, it'll get wound up with your estate and, and then distributed amongst all of your beneficiaries, not just the ones that you meant the RESP for education for. Um, so you, so in that case then, you know, so the RESP is not a trust, um, but in, in the case of wanting to make sure that the money we set aside in the RESP is meant for the child and we want to preserve the grants and bonds and anything else that's in there, then you set up a testamentary trust in the terms of your will so that the trustee who takes over the RESP has to, um, has to contribute to it in the way that you wanted to. Probably they'd max out the contributions or come up with some scheme from the proceeds of yeah. your estate. Um, but then they would manage it according to the terms of the trust, which could then dictate when the kids are able to get it and how it's managed if they don't go to school, et cetera, et cetera. Okay, I have questions. Okay, so you're saying joint subscribers. So you can set that up when you open the account? Mm -hmm. Set up a joint subscriber? It sounds like it's a bit more of an endeavor than with other accounts? Or is well, it when you simple? When you open, it's very simple. Okay, so you can, you can describe a joint subscriber to your partner or something like that? Yeah, yeah. Or if it turns out that you did that before you realized that your partner was a U.S. citizen and therefore shouldn't have his hands on any RESPs, yeah. then you can transfer it into your own hands and take him off of there. But that's also a fair amount of paperwork. It might take you a year. I mean, I'm just saying a non-specific non example. It could happen. And if it could, that's what it would look like. Sometimes. But yeah, so you can, you can at the time, it's no big deal. But later okay. on, it's an enormous, big, hairy deal. And then, and, and so, that also just speaks back to, you, you gotta have a will. Gotta have a will. Yeah, so that was my next question. So, so kind of as far as how that, room, let's yeah, everybody, actually, yeah, I can, I can add my hypocrite name to the list. Um, yeah, you, you don't have an RESP yet, you don't have a Well, will. I don't have the will, so there's the, it, it tags in some other stuff, but no, it's a specific RESP will problem, no. Yeah. No, they won't let me open one. I could open it's one for a stranger if I could just get their sin. <laughs> I can I can pass you my kids' sins if you want. No, <laughs> I'm gonna in both of the ways that that room. might be meant. Could put fifty thousand. Yeah, I see it. As long as you don't put beads up your nose, it's fine. You're probably better to have it anyway. I'm out. I'm out. I'm hard out. <laughs> so okay, so you you subscribe to you you put the joint subscriber down and then if you die before they can have access to that, that transfers fairly seamlessly then, or is it important as well to have that, to have it set up as a testamentary? Like, it, it, is it like a TFSA or an RSP where just like, if you've got the name down, that's the, I got the impression that it wasn't at all from how you were talking about it. So no. people need- If it's joint, if it's subscriber. joint, it's like an RSP or a TFSA. Okay, okay. so if that's in line, if, the, if it's joint and they've set that up, then it's fine. Then it, then it will roll to the joint subscriber and they will be able to manage it and then it's okay. Yeah. But if that isn't the case, then you need to, within your will, basically say, this RESP is gonna get managed by a trustee, set up as a testamentary trust, mm -hmm. and th this is specifically for the education of this person. So in that case, it, it, is it like the RESP is dissolved and then the funds are taken out and put into a separate thing, or can the trustee actually take over the actual RESP? I, I'm curious about whether you might have to give back grant room or like, does it, is it deemed dissolved completely or is it just kind of transferred over as an entity into the trust? No, it's it, the trustee takes over as the successor subscriber. Okay, so you can as, through a will, if you don't have, um, 
if you don't have a joint subscriber, you can set up a trustee to be a successor subscriber to yeah. your oh, RESP. So you can do one of two things. You can actually just set up a successor subscriber, forget about a trust, but that successor subscriber is then just all those limitations we talked about. The subscriber does not have to give the money to the kid. All of those things are now true of that person. So yeah. you might totally trust them, yeah. but they might not be totally trustworthy or whatever that is. No, right? totally. So you said it. So in order to add, like maintain the purpose for which you contributed these funds, you set up a testamentary trust. Okay. So that they're governed by the terms of the trust and not just the terms of the contract between the RESP and the subscriber. For sure. That makes sense. That makes sense to me. We did say a lot of words that on their own are confusing and weird, but I think that uh, I, I understand. The general rule of thumb with RESPs in any way is that there is going to be way more paperwork than you thought there would be. And the person that you're dealing with, unless you're really, really lucky, is going to be like, Ooh, I've never done this before. I don't know. And they'll give you some answer and it won't be the right one. And, and I can tell you, I can tell you this from personal experience on both sides of the desk, because they don't give you really great RESP education when you start out at the bank. But the next day, after you sit behind the desk, the first time put out your nameplate, boop, somebody comes in and goes, Ooh, something, RESP something. And then you give them whatever bullshit answer comes out of your face because you're scared to death of what your manager's going to say. And it just creates this five-year-long nightmare for everybody involved. I mean, again, non-specific example. <laughs> but I would like to say that banking is garbage and I never want to be there again. Okay. Although I know more now than I did. The end. And yet again, full of lovely people who are just trying to get through the day, mostly. And are scared shitless. And are scared shitless. So can, how about we help me when I open my RESP, which will happen at some point, I imagine. Where, where do I go? I know I'm expecting paperwork now, so that's fun. And I'm expecting not to be given proper information, but where should I go? Do I just go to my bank? So that's an option and that will work at the end of the day, but then we're gonna get back to, this is going to hold investments. And when you're holding investments, you want to be conscious of fees and diversification, ease of use. And so, then we're going to get back to like the value of simple or my course, uh, which by the way, if you're just tuning in, there's the book. And uh, if you're listening, Chris is holding up a copy of the book uh, or the course at course.valuesimple.ca uh, where I'll walk people through like step-by-step -step how you actually open some of these accounts and make trades within them. Uh, so in that case, you might want to go to TD, open the TD direct investing RESP or a TD mutual funds RESP so you can buy TD E-Series within them. Uh, or you might want to go to a robo-advisor. A number of them are offering RESPs, and a few of them even offer some of the provincial grants uh, that are available. And Sandy has her hand up. I have my hand up because JustWealth offers a target date RESP, which if you're going to a robo-advisor because you don't want to be the person managing your portfolio, presumably you also don't want to be the person calling your advisor and saying, let's, let's put in like a glide path towards 18 and withdrawal so that we actually decrease the equity allocation over time. JustWealth actually is the only RESP that I know of that does that automatically. So they're worth looking at. I mean, obviously calculate fees, calculate how much you like them. I really like them. Calculate all those things. And this can't be the only thing, but talking about ease of use and simplicity, if they're gonna do that, that kind of decreasing equity glide path until it's time to withdraw from the account, that's, that's worth seriously considering. Okay. And then and the Sorry, can I just ask what the questions that I want to ask an our uh, provider are, 
you know, do you have, can I hold an RSP with you? Can I get CESG? Can I get the biggest grant with you? Can I have access to any provincial grants that are maybe available for me? And can I have access to the uh, Canada Learning Bond? Yeah. If I think that that might be an issue. So if I'm asking those questions and the answers are all yes, am I in a good place? Yeah. Um, if you don't need the Canada Learning Bond, you're going to find a lot of them don't offer it, especially okay. when you're talking an investment account. Um, most of the providers that I'm aware of are bank accounts and GIC type accounts. Okay. Um, Sandy? I got the Canada Learning Bond for my kids. I've been at CIBC Investors Edge, CIBC Mutual Funds. I've been at Well Simple, and I've been at TD. Okay. <laughs> I got it every time. <laughs> okay, um, then it's not as restrictive as I thought. I I did not I think might just pick investing was uh, one of the ones that would offer it, but uh, I'm wrong on that. Okay, um, the other point I was gonna bring up is that uh, I'm big like sign the table fees are important and just mentioned it a couple minutes ago. However, um, ease of use is going to be perhaps a little more important than when you're talking a retirement account here because the fees don't have as long to compound and you're not going to be talking as much money. So for a retirement account, you're going to build up more assets over more time. So the fees are going to have a much bigger impact. If you're paying a little more on your RESP, it's not going to be as big a deal because the, the most you're ever going to put in there is $50,000 because that's the maximum lifetime contribution room plus whatever the growth in CESG is that might bring it a little bit above that in terms of total assets, but unlikely. Over time be, too, yeah. Yeah, it's unlikely that it's gonna be huge. And uh, your kids are most likely going to start going to post-secondary education in their late teens, early 20s, and at most into 30 years of the lifetime of the account, 30 some years lifetime of the account. So again, you don't have quite as much time for the higher fees to compound and make such a big difference. So, you know, you, if you want to go with something that costs a little more for a little more ease of access, in particular, something like Sandy just mentioned, not that we're promoting them, but that uh, just swap option, no. Uh, th then that might be a consideration, even if you would not necessarily choose them for your retirement accounts. Yeah. Yeah, the, the biggest thing, like like you guys both said throughout throughout the last little bit is just, you know, just open it first. Just get it open, get the basket open so that it exists. And then, you know, any kind of regular small contribution give you access to free money. That's the thing that you hear the most, but it is the biggest thing to kind of take away from any RESP contribution is that there is there is more easily accessible free money than in a lot of other cases. And you can get it with small amounts. You know, it's, you don't have to think about that just the maxing out with 2,500. And you also, it was something we haven't talked about a lot, and I know MOI didn't ask a question about it, but it's worth mentioning is that, you know, that if you haven't started it for the first six years, you still, you, you have a chance to kind of access that grant amount from previous years, um, by by over donating so it's the idea that you, you can kind of dig your dig back some of that grant amount you can't dig it back all right away you can't like donate ten thousand dollars and get um two thousand dollars of grant in one year but you can gain back an extra year of grant so basically you could you could put in five thousand dollars and get double the grant and get a thousand dollars with the grant in one year and then the next year you could do that again for a year that you missed so you know you never know if you 
your financial situation might change in 10, 15 years. And, and so that is there. So opening it up and just kind of giving yourself the opportunity and making it easier for you to do that if there does become money available is, is just a nice, a, nice, a nice thing to do. Yeah, so I didn't mention it earlier, but uh, the lifetime amount of grants available from, through CESG is 7,200. And you get $500 of that uh, room each year plus a little bit more if you qualify for the bonus top up ones for being low yeah. income. Right. Um, I think it's on top and not taking away from it. Um, thing to double check me on by researching this yourself or we'll put it in the show notes if Sorry, I Sorry, what was, what are you questioning? Um, my mom be questioning is uh, you get $500 of CESG room, but if you're lower income, you get $200 on the first Bit of contribution so then i'm like i'm not sure if you get six hundred dollars room or that room that bonus top up at the first five hundred dollars that you can contribute i think you get the six hundred dollars but i i'm not sure exactly how much that affects your lifetime max sandy's giving a skeptical look right now no it's not the skeptical look it's the 9 50 p.m look and i i'm sure that what you said made sense but i don't know what you mean and i can't i can't <laughs> I, I know the answer to this, I think, but I don't know no, what we you're were, asking. We were talking about the... Oh, the, hey, I have it. I have the... Okay, uh, perfect. Okay, yes. So you do get $600 a year if you qualify for that full maximum top-up, yeah. but your lifetime is still 7200 Okay, that's a good thing to know. Okay. Okay. <laughs> uh, I and I, sorry, so to try to undo the confusion I just caused. So you get $7,200 of lifetime grant contribution room. And you earn that contribution room $500 at a time, unless you qualify for the bonus ones. And then you can catch up on up to one extra year's worth of contribution room. So if you're not able to contribute for a couple of years, like Chris is saying, your child's going to earn, uh, that beneficiary is going to earn $500, $500, $500 of contribution of grant room, sorry, not contribution, of grant matching each year. And you can use up to two years worth of that to catch up later. So if you start contributing at age five or six, they've already got um, $2,500, $3,000 of grant room earned, grant, again, shouldn't use the word room, match earned. And so then you can start contributing enough to get $1,000 a match each year to start catching up to still get to $7,200 worth of grants by the time that they turn 17. And likewise, let's go, but so that's the, if you can't contribute for a while, let's go to the scenario where you're like, hey, I've got $50,000. I'm just gonna, I'm gonna contribute it all in year one, but it means that you get the grants for year one and that's it. They don't, yeah. you, you can't use that $50,000 in year two to get some more grants. It's all, yeah. all you get is whatever that was that you got in that first, but max that one year. Yeah. Yeah. So if you have a ton of money and you want to put it all in the RESP as kind of a way to create a less, uh, paperwork heavy uh, informal trust for your children. Um, you can put in, I think it's $36,000 in the first year and then $2,500 each year after that to start maxing out the amount of grant contribution room and the contribution, the amount of grant matching you get and the contribution room that you have to try to make the most of your RESP if you've got that kind of money sitting around to dedicate towards your kids. That's smart. That's a good calculation to share. Good Excuse job. Me. Yeah. <laughs> Nailed it. Well done. <laughs> I have one other thing that I'd love you guys to talk about a little bit and, and, um, Sandy was mentioning it before, but just bringing to light the idea of setting a glide path and just kind of the life cycle of an RESP. 
And there's something that, until we talked about it not too long ago, I hadn't really thought about because I haven't thought about using an RESP for my own and I haven't had to do it with a lot of clients. So like that idea that just like the life cycle of an RESP, managing your assets throughout and, um, and setting that is, um, is another thing you have to think about with, with if you want to be really a DIY in your own RESP. Yeah. Well, think about it. I mean, if you start the week after your kids are born, I mean, that's a pretty rapid social insurance number turnaround time, mind you. But let's say you start the year that your children are born, you have almost 18 full years before you start withdrawing. So 18 years in normal investment speak is a pretty long time horizon. So you yeah. get pretty aggressive, right? With your equity allocation, if you're comfortable with it otherwise. But then you have four years of withdrawals. And those withdrawals typically, um, kids at 18 probably are not gonna be able to say, um, well, returns are down right now. The markets we've we've experienced a crash, and so now I'm going to defer my education until my investments recover or your investments recover, mom and dad. That's probably not going to happen, right? So, so it, over a four-year time horizon of withdrawals, let's say it's a classic four-year, you know, program. That the sequence of return risk that we talk about in retirement withdrawals from a portfolio is magnified times a thousand. Well, Completely. That's not Right, but yeah. well, that's not a real number. It's like 4%. <laughs> I don't know what it is. <laughs> it's magnified. It's just magnified. Okay. But uh, the sort of counterbalancing factor is that um, as a student going off to post-secondary education, the RESP is not necessarily everything you have to depend on. Whereas in retirement, mm -hmm. your retirement funds might be, you might not have the option of going back to work or taking out a loan to fund your retirement. Uh, whereas the beneficiary in this case could potentially take out a loan if, to cover any shortfall if you had it invested aggressively and then that bet worked against you and the markets went down or they could get a job and work to make up some of the difference. And they might need to do both of those things anyway, depending on how big the RESP is and how expensive the program that they're going to attend is. Is this, does this change kind of the math as far as family versus individual? Because that changes the time frame too. If you've got one lump, it just changes the sequence of returns. I think you were talking about this a little while on something, Sandy, the idea of just like when, if you've got three kids and so you've got one big lump of money that you've been contributing to, and then, you know, you start to eat, it's just a longer time frame that you're yeah. taking and for different people. So it's longer time frame, but it's, or the same amount of time frame for different. So there's an extra piece of complication there. Maybe does that factor in with family versus individual or does that make you think at all? Well, it, it certainly does. So I always answer that question with another question, which is how important is, are you, are you, very do important. You want to make sure, yeah, obviously. Um, <laughs> do you want to make sure, is it really important to you that each kid gets exactly the same amount of mm -hmm. money? Or is it more important to you that each kid gets the amount that's available to them if you contribute at the same, like you've contributed the same amount to each of them, each of them receives something different based on what program they go to, for example, whether they actually enroll at all, all of those things. So, so first I ask that question. And then the next question is, and how important is it to you to fund to a certain level? So we have to make sure to pay for tuition every year for our kids, that's non-negotiable. Well, that is lower risk tolerance, right? And so, and, and so within the confines of a total lifetime contribution cap, it's different than you know, somebody saving for retirement and having access to a whole bunch of different ways of doing that. Um, that's a side, that's totally sidebar. Um, but so that age difference can be really, really important, depending, or it can be not important at all. So in my case where nothing is important, 
I have three kids who are pretty close to age, like close in age. There's 44 months between my oldest and my youngest. So it's not like whatever, whatever happens, I'm okay to implement a glide path kind of for, let's say Oscar, who's my middle child, let's say I implement a glide path, assuming his graduation date. And then Nora has a little bit more risk on the front end. And Lucy has kind of risk of lower returns because she'll have two extra years of like a lower equity allocation. As she's she's not going to be cool with that. No, she will stick more beads <laughs> up her nose. Let me tell you. <laughs> she is going to be mad. Don't tell her about the glide path. No. She, it's not good. What else is new? <laughs> <laughs> I feel like a, there could be a book called Glide Path for Oscar, and I don't know exactly what it's about. There would be hang gliders, though. Yeah. I mean. Yeah, and it wouldn't be a book. hang gliders. Sorry, that's just beating a dead horse. <laughs> I love it. It's so much fun. <laughs> All right, that's all we've got for you today. If you liked what you heard, head over to iTunes and give us a really good rating. That really helps people find us. That would be awesome. And if you loved what you heard, why not check out our Patreon page, patreon.com slash because money and lend us a little support so we can keep doing what we're doing. I am Chris Entz and you can find me over at ragstoreasonable.com. I'd like to thank my partners in crime, Sandy Martin, who you can find at Spring Financial Planning, springplans.ca, and John Robertson, who you can find Value It Simple, or his blog, Blessed by the Potato, which is holypotato.net.